Good morning. All right. So, in kind of keeping with the pattern of what we've been doing here, these last, um, these first times that we're speaking, I'm going to share my testimony with you today. Um, a couple of different parts of it. And um, then I'm just going to share with you a couple scriptures that have just been really important to me um, in my Christian walk. And um, I'm excited to tell it. It's been a while since I told it, and I think there's actually some people that haven't heard it. So <laughs> that's always exciting. So, okay. Um, so my testimony. My name's Bree. I guess I should start there if you don't know me. And um, I'm not from Michigan. Uh, I grew up in Missouri, in northwest Missouri, in a little farm town there. And um, I uh, had a pretty normal, good and fun childhood, nothing too eventful. Um, and uh, I've got, um, obviously, my mom and dad, and I have one sibling, my brother. And um, my family was fantastic. You know, I we're still close. They've loved me through all of these, like, you're doing what? You're, you're what? You believe what? You know, and they still love me and, um, and they're awesome. But, you know, every family is imperfect. We talk about that a lot here, how um, no matter how good our earthly fathers and mothers are, um, that we are living um, on earth and it has fallen. So um, we all tend to accumulate this um, interesting baggage, which makes for a great story that I'm going to tell you today. <laughs> um, all right. So I grew up mostly, for the most part, unchurched. Um, I would go to church sometimes with my grandparents, uh, but it was more of a very ritualistic thing. And um, Northwest Missouri is very Bible Beltish, so um, of course you have morals and you have standards, and you know who Jesus is because duh. And um, you know you you have this Bible Belt foundation thing, but it, it doesn't really often mean much to people. Um, and, and a lot of times it doesn't really change their lives. And so I went to church a lot. I lit the candles. I went through the confirmation. I did all of those things, but no one ever told me how to be saved or what um, Jesus' death and resurrection meant for me personally. Um, that never came across to me. So um, I grew up pretty much unchurched, and, um, and I did not know the Lord. Um, and I just was a great hedonist and did whatever I want and um, just whatever pleased me. And uh, according to my perception, I was moving along just fine in life doing that, um, getting along just fine. Um, I was a single mom, um, but I was making it. And um, I was kind of surprised because everybody had told me how difficult it was going to be, but I was doing it. I was raising my child by myself, and um, I was making making a life for us. And um, I was working in a bar. I was a bartender a lot in my early 20s, and um, that's where I was working when I met Joe. So my story of meeting Joe and getting married is also my salvation story. Um, they're so tightly interweaved that you really can't separate them. And so I'll tell you how we met. Um, I was working in the bar. I was tending bar that night, and it was a small place, and um, it was also a restaurant. So if you wanted to get something to eat on a weeknight, um, you could only get it there <laughs> because everything else was closed. It was a tiny town. And um, I would wait the tables and come back and make the drinks, and I would also take the food out to the tables on a weeknight. And um, we knew that uh, there were these new, um, that there were going to be new people in town, 
because the nuclear power plant that was close to um, this place where I worked was on shutdown. So they hire people to come in when those are closed to do things that they can't do while they're in operation. And those people are often traveling from out of town, and they come in and they act like they're on vacation. And they like to spend a lot of money, and they like to tip. And so we knew they were coming to town, and as soon as they walked in the door, I knew who they were. And, um, but there was this one of them, and it was Joe. He, he came to work at this nuclear power plant. And um, these guys start to walk in the door, and I know who they are. It's so, small towns are so creepy, guys. <laughs> like, we know who you are when you walk in the door. It's like, there they are. And, but I saw him, and I was just, I was fixated on him. Just from the first moment, I saw him walk in the door, and I can still see him walking in the door, just like it was yesterday. And uh, he just... I was just drawn to him immediately, and that never stopped. It's been 13 years. And um, so they all sat at a table, and I went up to the table, and I was talking to him, but he wouldn't have known because he wouldn't look at me. Um, He just had his head down, and he was just looking at his menu. And um, I'm me, (laughs) so I'm very bold and um, not afraid to... And he's Joe, so he's more... Um, retreated a little more introverted, especially then. And um, I'll let him tell his side of the story for the most part, but I will say that I know that he was like, who is this woman and what does she want with me because I don't want anything to do with her. And um, so I got to talk with him a little bit that night, and something I noticed about him that really intrigued me was that he wasn't a drinker. He didn't drink alcohol, which to me, I'm just like, well, you got to have a good reason for that. You know, you don't just make a decision like that. That's, that's, that was really interesting to me. And I also quickly learned that he wasn't a womanizer. And um, I, I was just intrigued. Like, that, that was so strange to me. You don't do either of those two things? Like, what's your deal? And how do I get to know you <laughs> if, you're, like, if you're not interested in any of that? Um, so gradually, over the course of probably about a week or so, I got him to talk to me. I just kept plugging away at him when he would come in to eat. And um, I finally got him to start to talk to me and to be okay with me. But um, he still just, he was just so interesting to me because he was different than anybody I had ever met before. And gradually over time, I got to learn that it was because he was a believer, that things were different for him than they were for me. And I had never really met someone that um, lived with that level of conviction before. Um, and uh, it was different, but I was definitely drawn to it. And so I knew that I liked this person, and um, so I decided I'm going to invite him over to my apartment and because um, I liked him. I just was interested in him. So I invited him over, and I was so excited for this meeting. I had ideas and expectations about how this evening was going to progress. And it did not go my way, like at all. Um, and something, there's a piece of the story that's really interesting, is that um, if I wasn't working or hanging out at the bar, I was drinking at home. And um, that was just something I did a lot at that time. And uh, so I always had um, alcohol in my house. And for some reason, that day, I had not stopped at the liquor store. And I was out. I had nothing. 
I had nothing to consume that could carry my mind at all. That's, that was really unusual. And now today I know that it was a God thing because he came over. And um, it was October. It was close to Halloween. We started talking. And uh, he started just laying it out to me. He just started telling me about, like, Jesus angels and demons and heaven and hell and consequences and being saved and all this stuff. And I was just sitting there thinking, why am I letting this guy stay in my apartment? Like, uh, and I'm just thinking, I'm totally sober and I'm having to sit here and listen to all of this. And I just am kind of like, uh-huh, uh-huh, this is insane. Is he going to kill me? Like, it was just so weird and uh, but I just continued to sit there and listen to him, and it was it was so funny too because I had made like this attempt to de- appear domestic. I had made this like crockpot of cheese dip, which I found out later he doesn't even like, and he still doesn't like much to this day. So so all I did was succeed in making my whole apartment smell like baked cheese. It was <laughs> that was that was a real plus. But so he he witnessed to me. Very boldly, he told me everything, and then he was like, "I got to go. I've got work in the morning. I'll see you later." <laughs> so he just left, and that's when conviction started for me. I just sat there, like, "Whoa! I know what I've done. <laughs> I know what I do, and I know what must be in this apartment right now. <laughs> and I know. I just knew. You know, it's not something I knew logically. It's something I could feel." I just started to feel convicted from that evening. It never stopped. And it was like the walls just got closer and closer and closer. And there was only one way out the whole time. It's like you don't even have to know what the way out is in your mind, but you just know, you know, the Spirit is bringing you conviction. And um, I actually called him. I got so scared. I called him and I'm like, dude, you freaked me out. Like, I, I can't go to sleep and so he ended up coming back and talking to me and, and helping me settle down a little bit. But it never stopped after that. Well, um, that was in October. And I didn't get saved until March. But that whole time I was under conviction gradually, coming under conviction. And Joe stuck around. And um, he would continue to talk to me about the Lord and about all these things. And I was so resistant. You know, because it's like when you feel yourself getting comp- compressed like that. You just want to resist. You just want to rebel, you know? And like there was all kinds of stuff rising up in me. I don't know exactly what was going on, but I know it was a spiritual war. And um, so he, <laughs> he had um, certain convictions about um, the behavior of folks outside of marriage that I did not share. <laughs> I'll just put it that way. And I tormented and goaded him on that line so much and it really made it miserable for him and he showed himself to be such a person of moral character and strength and um it, it, it irritated me because he he was saying no to me um it irritated me but i also started to respect him like i had never respected anyone else and uh, i just It's just crazy. Who does that? I've never met anyone like that. And uh, I just started to think, this guy's the real deal. Like, he's worth it. And um, so I also knew that marriage was really important to him. 
and um, he would say, you know, marriage is important to me, and uh, I can't marry you unless you know the Lord, unless you're saved. And I was like, that's ridiculous. Seriously, I know you like me. Just do it anyway. And he would say, no, I won't. And I would get so angry, and I would say, you know what, then? You're going to have to figure out how you're going to explain when you're a pastor, because in my mind, any man who is that serious about God, that's the only direction he can go is he's going to be a pastor. And uh, I said, well, you're going to have to figure out how to explain to your congregation when you're a pastor why your wife is a drunk. And I would just get so mad and like spew all this vitriol at him, and he would just sit there. And I would say, so what are you going to do about that? He would say, I think you're going to change. And then I would just get more mad. Like, oh, what do you mean you think I'm going to change? And all this time, like, this conviction is rising up in me, and I'm just feeling cornered, like I'm going to fight. And um, so that went on for five months. And then, you know how you tell a story about someone, and you don't know them at the time, and you tell the story later when you do know them, and it just makes it funnier? So back then, I didn't know anything of God. But now I do. So I think about what he must have thought as he watched me go through all this, just like, oh, goodness sakes. (laughs) So I decided my last-ditch attempt at not surrendering to the Lord and at doing things my way was to decide, fine, you don't like people who are drunk, I'll be sober. You want me to clean up my language? I'll stop saying bad words. I'll do those two things, and that will be enough for you. You know, that should be good. That's how church people act, right? You know, they, they don't get drunk and they don't say curse words. All right, I can do that in my own strength. So I did. <laughs> I just decided I'm going to be sober. I'm done. But the conviction didn't stop. It just didn't stop. And now that I know God, I look back on that and I'm just it's so blessed by it because he didn't want all the right outward behaviors. He wanted me. You know, he was after me. And he's like, no, that's, that's not enough. And it's not that it's, an, obviously it's not enough for righteousness. But it wasn't enough. And like, that's, I don't just want your outward behavior. I want you. Because I love you and I value you. And so when I look back on that, I just, I mean, that's just classic me. My last, last ditch attempt at not surrendering. Keeping control. And so it was just one day. Joe wasn't even there. I think he was up here in Michigan moving some stuff or doing something. Um, it was just one day that I just had had enough. And I just laid out everything to the Lord and just said, okay, uh, not uh, my will, but yours. So from here on out, I have no idea what that looks like. <laughs> but I can't continue to go on the way that I am. So here I am. And after I did that, I took a really long nap. <laughs> It was awesome. It was like really deep sleep. It was just interesting. But anyway, um, so from that time forward, I never looked back, and things just really started to radically change. Um, That was in March, and I continued to work in the bar until October. And so the whole time, I was undergoing this new Christian enthusiasm and um, learning all of this new stuff and beginning my transformation I was working in the bar, and people were watching it. It was totally on display because I was a basket case. I was just bleh. 
And uh, I would talk to people about the Lord, and um, I started to discern things right away. And I had no idea what to do with that sensory input. I was totally overwhelmed by it, and it felt really weird. And there was times where I was really afraid, just because I didn't know what was happening. I didn't understand. I had no grid for what something feels like when you're sensing it in your spirit. Like That's so off the wall to someone who's never heard that before. And... um I remember nights where, and I was just, I had no theology or doctrine. I just had the Holy Spirit living in me. And I remember nights where I would witness to people in the bar, and uh, there would be an empty seat next to me. And me, this new little Christian, it was like I could feel the Lord sitting in the seat. And in my, I was sensing that in my spirit, and I was receiving it and loving it. But in my brain, I'm like, you, you're crazy. Like, what in the world is even going on? How can you reconcile all this? But I knew, you know, something deeper was receiving that. It was just totally bypassing my brain. And the presence of the Lord was there with me, witnessing to people. And it was awesome. It was really a really awesome formative time for me in learning who the Lord was and um, just how much people needed him, you know, because I could see it in their eyes when I would tell them the truth. They were afraid, but somewhere in there they knew that it was real. It was true. So <clears throat> so then um, Joe and I met in October. I got saved in March, and we got married a little less than a month after I got saved. So he was definitely waiting for that <laughs> transformation. And uh, so we got married less than a month later, and... Um, as I was preparing this and thinking about this, you know, we were supposed to pull out little teachable nuggets and whatnot. So as I was thinking about that time and us getting married, and I've always said that that was one of the best decisions I've ever made. And when you hear the story, it sounds like it was just totally made in haste. You know, a month after you get saved, six months after you met, you get married. And it really was one of the best decisions I ever made. And at times, it was really, really hard. Like, it was really hard. Like, fiery trial, just intense hard. Because we both had a lot of baggage. Just a lot of stuff that we brought in. Because we didn't, we didn't live squeaky clean lives. Everybody does have baggage. But we had a lot of it. And, um, but we had this thing. We had this story. That story I just told you. And um, what are you going to do? Are you going to deny that? We knew that the Lord had brought us together, that our marriage was God-ordained, and we had no doubt that that was true. How are you going to escape that if you're going to take God seriously? You can't. You just can't. You'd have to deny him altogether. And uh, so I was trying to think of that commitment and that covenant and that knowledge and trust in the fact that God had brought us together. It kind of formed this structure and this perimeter around us that inside of which it was intense. It was fiery trials, but we were able to, because of the strength of that structure, to to grow inside of there and to let things get messy. And um, I was trying to think of a word for what that structure would be. I was thinking about it, and I'm like, you know what that was? That was a crucible. 
And um, I thought I should probably look up that word crucible just to make sure I'm not using it incorrectly. And I did. And it's the most perfect definition I've ever found for my marriage. Um, so the definition definition is, it's a situation of severe trial or a situation in which different elements interact, leading to the creation of something new. And that was so true. I mean, we were two different elements that were put into this crucible, this covenant, this commitment, and we were interacting in there. <laughs> it was inside of the crucible of marriage and the strength of what God had done that we were able to um, confront each other. We were able to admit when we were wrong, repent, forgive each other. You know, it was inside of that crucible that we wounded each other, and we were also part of each other's healing. And I just have no doubts whatsoever that um, if it wasn't for our marriage, the two of us as individuals, we just wouldn't be able to, we wouldn't be where we're at today without each other. And um, just the grace that God shows us when we say, all right, I know God ordained this, and so he has the resources to hold it together. So I'm going to trust him for that. And the peace that comes in out of that, when you get that new thing, it's just one of the most rewarding thing things that two people can experience. I think in this life is when you have two people that are in agreement and willing to surrender to God and, um, and let him work in both of you and let him use you in the other's life. It was kind of funny. We were just, I was, I've been thinking about this a lot. And we were in the drive-thru line at Culver's on a date, because that's a Kerneal date, is the drive-thru line at Culver's. And, and he was getting ready to order food, and he was, like, going to order too much food. And I'm like, you're not even going to enjoy all that. <laughs> you just, you're getting too much. He's like, yeah, you're right. And uh, I just kind of laughed, and I said, you know what? I think that God said, you know who needs 24-7 accountability? You two. Marry each other. You know, <laughs> just it just cracked me up because really I, the Lord has brought us together and facilitated growth um, with each other. And it hasn't always been easy, but it has been very, very rewarding. Yeah. All right, so we're married, and I'm a new Christian. And uh, so that means I get to be a part of the fellowship of believers, right? And that just comes naturally to all Christians, right? Like, you just know how to do that when you come out of one life. So, and then you come into a new one and you just know how to, you don't know how to do it. <laughs> it's just, I have to remind myself all the time that for people who are new believers, they don't know how to do church stuff. Like, they're leaving behind. This is how it was for me. I had this whole identity, this person that I was, established in all of this stuff that had to be thrown out for the most part. There were so few things that I could keep from that that had any value. So now I got to transition into this totally new personhood with this new group of people. I have all new peers, most of which have not come from the background that I came from. And I just was, I had no idea what I was doing. I was just walking around trying not to say bad words in church to church people. And I did not know how to participate. I was just baffled. I felt like I was an identity no man's land, and it was extremely disorienting and really confusing and super uncomfortable. And um, I lived that way for like the first five years of my Christian walk. 
I just always felt like a misfit. And it wasn't because of the people that were around me. There were lots of good people that were around me that wanted to include me. It was just me. I just felt like I was not quite clean enough and not quite good enough to be the way that they were. And I was just this misfit. Always felt like I was on the outside, even though, even if it didn't look that way. I just felt like, where do I belong? I don't belong with these people in the bar. I can't go back there. I can't do that. And I don't belong with these people in the church. <laughs> and I guess I just belong with Joe, and that's it. <laughs> and so that was really hard. I started searching for identity in different things. So I looked at other women in the church And I thought, well, they are really into being wives and mothers. And so I guess I will just be domestic. And I will establish my identity there. And oh my gosh, I was so unhappy. I was so unhappy. I tried to take up sewing. I don't like sewing. I can't do it. Nothing's ever straight. I can't craft. You know, I love it when people can make something cool out of pallets. I can't. My craftiness stops. Like, you know what I use that part of my brain for is like figuring out how to rig the seat on my lawnmower so it doesn't shut off when I get off of it anymore. Like, that's that's what I use crafty parts of my brain for. So I just felt, not only did I not have an identity, but I just continued to not fit in and just get more and more unhappy. And I just thought, this is not what this is supposed to be like. I thought that... When you became a Christian, everything was sunshine and lollipops. And um, I kind of had a little disappointment. I didn't really know what was going on. So then, our identity-establishing God sent me to an identity-establishing church, which is CCF. And um, if you don't know this, um, this church is all about sonship the Father's heart, and helping people establish their identity in Jesus. Uh, Because that's where our identities are found. You know, they say that your identity comes from your Father. That's who gives you your identity. Well, that's true for us. And that's what I needed. And I didn't even know I needed it, but that was the antidote to everything that I was going through. And I would say that, so I've been at CCF for, it'll be eight years in um, April next year. And I would say the banner over that whole eight years has been um, identity establishment and learning sonship. Um, Other little things have occurred in that, but that's what I needed most. And it has been a renaissance for me. You know, really, it's just been the most powerful thing I've experienced since I got saved. Was learning, you know, who I am in the Lord and I don't, I, I can't stand it when people get all wishy-washy self-actualization, like, I know who I am. You know, that is not what I'm saying. Because there's things about you that are going to get left behind and that you need to let drop off and that the Lord is going to kill. And you have to give up. So it's not all about you. But he did create you a certain way. And he did it on purpose. And he has a purpose for you. And he has a purpose for me. And, um, and it's not for me to be like everybody else. And so I, it's a process. It's really a process to let him teach you who you are in him. And so I came here, I started listening to Pastor Brent preach. 
And he was saying things I had never heard before, and it was just such a renaissance for me. I didn't understand God as a father. I didn't understand that he loved me. I knew him as master and king. That was it. I did not know him as friend and brother. I didn't know any of that. And um, it was so powerful to me. I felt like every Sunday he was talking to me. I just couldn't get enough of it. And um, it was it was thrilling. And then I um, I did some... I got some ministry around some, just really my whole life. And that really helped me to um, get rid of the bad and embrace the good. To replace so many of the lies that I had believed with truth. And just to let God show me, you know, what needed to be fixed, what needed to be healed. And it was so powerful. So I just want to share with you briefly um, one little section of that that was really important to me and that was really integral in helping me grow. So, uh, do you know that if you're really afraid, it's difficult to have faith? <laughs> it's difficult to take risks because faith, doing things by faith, essentially that's a risk, right? We don't know how that's going to turn out. We don't know what the steps are. We don't know what that looks like. Uh, we just have to say yes and we have to trust the Lord. And if you are a person who is afraid... You can't do that. And then you're just hamstrung. You're stuck forever in that spot, protecting yourself and being afraid. And um, I was terribly afraid of failing. I was very afraid of failure, of being wrong. And I was really afraid of disappointing people. Um, I grew up in a family that was very honor and duty driven. Um, We were a military family. And um, very legacy and honor, um, kiss the ring (laughs) kind of attitude. And um, there was so many good things that I learned from that. But there was also many, many times to disappoint people that you really love and look up to. And that, it takes its toll. And so, if you haven't noticed about me, I'm almost six feet tall. (laughs) And um, so, when I was young, I've always been, for as long as I can remember, I've been almost six feet tall. I mean, it happened really early, which is hard. And um, so there was a lot of high hopes for me to be this amazing athlete. And I was not. (laughs) I just wasn't. And, you know, when you grow like a foot, your hands and feet are like they're just gumby. You can't do anything. You know, none of your appendages are anything useful. So anyway... Um, I just developed this ability to avoid trying. And that was how I protected myself. I would just not try. Because if you don't totally engage in something and put yourself all the way out there and give it your all, at least you know, well, I failed because I'm always holding something back here. I mean, try having faith and maturing in the Lord when you've got that kind of mentality and attitude. I certainly would not be able to say yes to this if, I had that kind of mentality and attitude. So I seriously needed some healing around that. And um, this is where I learned that God is big enough for me to make mistakes. That uh, I'm not going to make a mistake so big that it's just going to derail his whole plan. And that he knows me. And he totally redeemed failure for me. I see it completely different now. And um, I love learning. And it's, it's just part of the learning process. It doesn't define you. It doesn't put a stop or an end to God's plan for 
whatever he's doing or for you. It's just an opportunity to learn. And you get back up and you do what you need to do to rectify that. And you just keep going. And there's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't even matter if it happens in front of everybody. It's fine. Really, seriously. If you fail in front of me, I'm just going to be... Good job. <laughs> so, um, as I went to the Lord for ministry for this, he took me back to this specific memory. And uh, this memory was um, when I was a freshman in high school. I don't know if any of you played sports in high school, but you can letter in sports. And in order to letter, you have to get uh, checked into the game a certain amount of times to get that letter at the end of the season. And um, they always wanted to try to get as many people to letter as possible. But if you were crummy, this is what they would do with you. They would put you in in the fourth quarter after the game was won or lost. You know, they'd take out all the valuable players. And then they would put in everybody for the last 10 seconds that they needed to put into the game so that they would get a letter. And that was me. And uh, I guess... That, in combination with a lot of other things, just spoke volumes to me about my worth and my value. And so the Lord showed me, as I went through this with him, that you know I just felt like I was dispensable. That, sure, I would be used for things, but not for anything of value. That I could just be dispensed with. Um, and I just, I just felt like I didn't amount to much. I didn't have much worthiness. And I really didn't have much, much expectation that the Lord would use me for anything. And uh, he showed me something so cool. You know, as being in a prophetic church, you get a lot of different prophetic input, which is all good, but every once in a while, there's those things that just hit home, and they just go so deep and minister to you. And this was one of those things for me. Um, he showed me uh, me going into the game in the fourth quarter, and feeling downtrodden, and feeling no good. And um, then he showed me himself, (laughs) sitting behind a scorer's table. And the scorer person writes down who checks into the game, and that's how they keep a record for you to get a letter. And it was him. He was sitting at the the scorer's book, and he was writing things down. And uh, he showed me, I've been checking you in this whole game. You just didn't know it. I've been using you this whole time. You just weren't paying attention. You've always been checked on. And I just was so blown away by that. And, um, and he told me, he said, in the fourth quarter of my game, you're going to be indispensable. When I put you in in the fourth quarter, it's for a purpose. It's because the outcome is very important and you have a role to play. Oh, my gosh. It just ministered to me. <laughs> it still does. It was, it was so powerful to me. And, you know, there's no partiality or favoritism with God. <laughs> so that's not just something special for me. And I'm sure the context in which he would speak it to you would be different because maybe you weren't traumatized by high school basketball. But I'm sure that he would say to you, too, you're indispensable. You know, we all have the same spirit. We're all in the same kingdom. Um, we all have a purpose in that kingdom. We're all members of one body. You know, we're dependent on each other. And so we all have that role to play. We're all, we're all indispensable. And uh, 
I think that also taught me an important lesson that I'm still relying on. And that lesson is that God's ability to bring you healing and to transform you is not dependent on your ability to know what you need or to know what's wrong with you. Um, you know, I get so into that identifying what's wrong so that I can find the solution because I'm a doer. I'm pragmatic like that. You know, I want to I wanna get better. <laughs> and he's just like, relax. You don't always have to know everything. And sometimes I'm just not going to tell you. You know, sometimes I'm just going to do it. And we often talk about um, how wounds are like seeds and um, they spread and uh, they infect lots of different parts of our lives. And it's hard for us to trace them back and find the origin. But you know what's the same for truth? It's the same for healing. It's the same for transformation. And um, it just, they're both seeds. It just depends on which one you nurture. So when you get those seeds of truth, when the Lord brings you revelation and he starts to transform you in an area, when you nurture that, it, it goes out into so many different areas of your life. And I really think that that's what this did for me. You know, it looked like it was just for one specific little thing. But as I started to nurture that truth and really believe God for that, it just, it took so many other things away. It ministered me in so many ways. And I know that without that healing, <laughs> there's so many things that I would have missed out on. and um, I just wouldn't be able to move forward in still thinking in that same old pattern. So... That's a little bit of what I've experienced when I've been at CCF. And uh, I hope that people continue to experience as we minister to them here because it's very powerful. And I had never been in a church before that does that or that wants to participate with God in that. Okay, so that kind of brings me up to the present day point um, where we are today. And um, in brings me up to the decision to say yes to being on pastoral team. I'm shaking a little less, so I must be getting a little less nervous. Um, so as we considered this, as we started to talk to Pastor Brent about being a team and about being a pastoral team, being that pragmatist in my mind, I wanted to know what are the duties can you, you know, let's lay it out because I want to know what I'm saying yes to. I want to be able to accept it with honesty. That's important to me. And um, so he did that for us. You know, he made us a sheet, said this is basically what I do. And um, then I look at the sheet and I say, can I say yes to that? And uh, it's weird because <laughs> I would look at the sheet and I would say, well, you know, I could probably get coffee going on Saturdays. I can probably prepare a message every five weeks. Um, but what is missing? <laughs> because it still doesn't feel like we're able to fill that void that was Pastor Brand. And I started talking to the Lord about that. And he said that the thing that you're missing is what I do in a person when I call them into leadership. <laughs> um, it's... Uh, you can't go without that peace. And that peace is not something you say yes to because you understand the steps. <laughs> you don't understand that step one is going to be this, step two is going to be that, and you think in your logical mind, oh, I can handle all that. I'll just say yes. You just say, I trust you. And I'm saying yes. So 
that was the part that's missing, is just yielding to the process of what the Lord does when he calls people into leadership and what he works in our hearts and what he breaks, what you give up. And like Tab talked about last week, you have to count the cost. You have to take that seriously. Um, To the best of your ability, you have to count the cost. And uh, as I talked to him about that more and the gravity of of that thing um, and saying yes by faith. Uh, I talked to him about that and I just said, how, how, how do you go forward under that level of responsibility, <laughs> under that level of gravity? And uh, he said to me, slow and steady wins the race. And I feel like he's talking to me about faithfulness. And being faithful to yield to him all the time. Just that continual submission and yielding to just let him do what he wants. No matter what that looks like for me. Because it's up to him. He's the one that's going to bring me satisfaction and fulfillment. And I fully trust him for that. It's not about what I do. It's about what he wants me to do. And I'll do what he wants me to do. Um, so I was thinking about this faithfulness. And talking to him about it. And um, what does that look like? You know, well, it looks like forsaking all others. If you're going to be faithful to someone, you forsake all others. That's in marriage vows. I'm just like, oh my gosh, you're explaining it to this to me, and it's not making it easier. Forsaking all others. And I don't even ask him what that means because he's going to show me. <laughs> and uh, he's going to show me every day because it's not a decision that you make once. It's something that he shows you as you progress and as you move along, which is probably the only way you could handle it anyway. So you just say yes by faith, and you just trust him to do what he's going to do. And I feel like faithfulness is really underrated (laughs) um, because it takes no special gift or calling or skill or charisma or ability. It's just a fruit of the Spirit. And we all have that same Spirit it's so underrated. It's not flashy. Um, but it's that slow and steady that wins the race. And I just know that it pleases God. The faithfulness pleases Him. And you know, my faithfulness is pretty wimpy. A pretty wimpy offering. You know, we all know that. And um, it doesn't certainly earn me merit or righteousness before the Lord. But I know that faithfulness pleases Him. And that when we give Him our offerings, that He multiplies them and He uses them for just great things. And I just am always amazed that he allows us to participate with him. <laughs> it's just such a blessing. He's so big. And here we are. And he's just says, he invites us to come and participate in what he's doing. It is amazing to me. Um, and, you know, as I thought about faithfulness, I see so much faithfulness on our pastoral team. And it just inspires me. It encourages me all the time. I see their faithfulness to yield behind closed doors. I see it in our meetings. And I heard their stories of faithfulness when they've been up here so far. I know I'm going to hear more from Jonathan and from Joe. And um, when BJ was up here talking, you know, it was a story of yielding and being faithful. You know, he gave up what he thought he wanted because the Lord told him, stay here, teach kids. And he did it. You know, those are the slow and steady things that win the race. When Tab was up here talking and she's, admitting that she was wrong on something that was big. And she's like, I trust you to bring me back from that. 
that, that's yielding, that's faithfulness. Those are those small, unglamorous things that the Lord uses to shape us and just make us what he wants. And it's, it makes me excited. It makes me feel so blessed to be a part of it. Those are the kind of people that I want to minister with. I want to call those people my colleagues. Um, so a couple of verses I wanted to share with you guys. One of them is on identity, and one of them is on faithfulness. So this first one on identity really ministered to me as I learned who I was. It's Hebrews 2, verse 11. It says, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. So if you are walking out of a life of shame and unworthiness, that's a really great one to meditate on. <laughs> because if you're good enough for Jesus, then you're good enough for anybody else, right? Um, and he's made you good enough. Um, he doesn't require things of you that he doesn't make a way for. Um, so, and then when I think about faithfulness and how little my faithfulness is and how I still fall short so often, I'm really encouraged by this. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And I just find that to be such an acknowledgement of the fact that I am constantly in need of grace and mercy all the time, every day, but that my God sits on a throne of grace. Um, and just speaks to me the abundance of grace and mercy that he has for me, that when I'm in weakness, and that I can come to him, and he supplies what I need, and I can come to him boldly, and he just receives me. He's invited me. And um, it just really helps me get through. And, uh, and to just receive from him everything that I need. So that's all I got so we can pray. <clears throat> Lord, I am just totally overwhelmed by your goodness. It's incredible what you do. Lord, I just, I sense that you are on the doorstep of so many people's hearts and that you're knocking and that so many people are going to receive you. And the world is so not ready for what you're going to do. They have no idea. And it's just going to be awesome. And uh, Lord, we just believe you for that. And in every way that you want to use us in that, Lord, just mold us and shape us, Lord. We're, we yield ourselves to you, Lord where we just make ourselves yielded vessels, Lord, for you to pour in whatever's pleasing to you, for you to pour in whatever you want to do and to use us for your purpose, Lord, because you're the potter and we're the clay. So we just acknowledge you as that, Lord. And we thank you that you've brought all the resources that we need, that you're kind and that you're loving and that you're patient and that you don't want to see anyone perish, Lord. We thank you that you're continually transforming us and making us into the image of Jesus, Lord. And we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.